You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. Welcome to Sarah Hagen backstage. My guest today, Antonio Sanchez, is a Grammy award-winning drummer and composer who has played with an amazing array of musicians in multiple genres over his past decades in the music industry. Today, we are going to talk about the music that shaped his personal sound, his journey as a drummer and musician, learning to play musically, and the many incredible projects he has done, including the soundtrack to the movie Birdman and his 2017 album, Bad Ombre, as well as what amazing things are on the horizon. So come along with me as I catch up with Antonio Sanchez. Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Good to see you. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. It's great to see you. Thank you. And where are you right now? Are you at home? Yeah, at home in New York. After traveling a little bit for Christmas and New Year's and all that stuff, we went to see family in Florida and Mexico. And now we're back dealing with um, my studio that got flooded back in September. Uh, yes. Thanks to Hurricane Ida. Mm-hmm. We totally lost the studio and we had to demolish everything, but now we're almost back up. And I think this this weekend I should be able to get back in there and start setting stuff up again. So I'm very happy about that. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. That was something I was going to ask you about how things were going, because I think all of us were following along on Instagram with you and Thana and like just your, your my gosh, seeing all the instruments and um, you were able to save uh, some things that were that were important, right? Just yeah, yeah. I mean, for the most part, the gear was fine because we saw the water coming in and we started just bringing stuff up. Some drums got wet, but you know, drums are resilient. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing about that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of traumatic just to see all that water just gushing, and and it was not from the outside. It was water that came in from the sewer line. So it was all dirty water, and you know, all of a sudden we started seeing stuff floating around in, in the studio. Oh, no. In the basement, it was horrible. But um, uh, luckily, insurance has been cool. Uh, then the insurance has to give the money to the mortgage company, and then they release the money to make sure that you are actually doing what you said you were going to do with sure. the construction. And because you know most people don't have a recording studio in their basement, then they were like, "Well." why so expensive you know because mm. that's the the but the the estimate that a contractor gave us gave us was like really really high but the insurance was cool and then uh mm. everything has been kind of smooth sailing that's good I mean, that's so it's taking a long time but but we're almost there so i'm super happy about it and also all the stuff that was in the studio we had to bring up into the house Mm-hmm. So I never knew how many symbols I had <laughs> until I had to carry them all up. It was like I have bags and bags and bags of symbols, which I absolutely adore and I don't want to get rid of anything, of course. Uh, but it was just incredible amounts of gear that we have in, 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 in the top part of the house. So we don't have our house either. So we're going to get our house back and the studio back and everything back at the same time. So it's nice. Yes, that will be so good. I'm very, very happy for you both yeah, about that. Thank you. That's thank good. You. And and so that on top of what we've, you know, all been dealing with this past two years, 
was a lot. How, how, how have you been through the pandemic? You know, ups and downs like everybody, I think. Um, I tried my best to, to, um, to be productive, of course, you know, now that we, we couldn't go out and play for a long time, we couldn't perform, we couldn't do what we like. And that I started noticing was bringing some really bad, um, like emotional uh, consequences. Mm -hmm. because of not being able to focus your energy in what you usually do, which to me, performing is very meditative. You know, uh, you are doing something incredibly concentrated, is absolutely immersive, um, what you're doing, when you're playing, when you're improvising, especially when, when I'm playing jazz, which, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, you never know which way it's going to go. So it requires all of your brain, all of your spirit, all of your emotional um, uh, side of, of your being and, and your, your physical side, of course. Mm -hmm. So to not have that and to not being able to focus my energy on, on, on that for such a long time is brutal. You know, it's been, it's been really hard. And, and what I did was actually I started thinking flying lessons because I figured, you know, something that I can be fully concentrated on. And I would get a little bit of kind of the same high, mm -hmm. uh, except that, of course, you know, learning to fly. Uh, I didn't know how to how to fly. I'm still learning, of course. But to learn something new during this time, I think was also very, very useful. Yes. Because, uh, you know, I, I just felt stuck, you know, like most people. Mm -hmm did and and even though i was doing a lot of stuff in my studio um i i still still felt like that part of the, the meditative uh aspect of the music because even when i'm recording you know i can stop and start and stop and start it's not really you know as committed to like two hours of your your life that you have to to do this this thing in front of people which is mm -hmm. also a little bit like tightrope walking mm -hmm. so I really miss that aspect of of things. So it's been it's been hard. Uh, some it has some silver linings, of course, and you know being home and and getting healthier and working out and doing all these things. But mm -hmm. but it, it's I'm not gonna lie to you. You know, there's been very very hard days, um, yeah. better days. Thankfully, Tana is a godsend, um, and you know we we've been dealing with it the best way we 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 can. Absolutely. Yes. I'm, I'm sure it does help to have um, a spouse who knows exactly how you're feeling, you know, with with the with the, with the industry being what it's what it's been the past couple of years. But I I love that you took control and started something new. Um, I love flying as well. I it's just one of those things like small planes. Um, I've been in one of those like powered hang gliders before, which is kind of like a motorcycle really with, with wow a yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's <laughs> right? awesome yeah, yeah so much fun um but i loved to see that i saw your posts about that and i was like this is super cool and i have another friend who's a drummer who um got his pilot's license during this time too um and in nashville and i was like this is this is cool this is a thing it's great yeah, <laughs> so, yeah it's kind of an expensive hobby <laughs> yes yes I, I asked about that i found that out yeah yeah, but uh, you know, uh, given the circumstances, for me, it was totally worth it. 
you know, yeah. more than a, an expense. It was an investment in my my mental health. Absolutely. To be yeah. yeah. And what a skill to have. You know, that's that's just great. Um, and so, you know, I, another thing that you have had in your life that's a, an incredible accomplishment is the gymnastics. And I just wanted to touch on that because we talked about this way, way back. Um, and, and you had shown me some pictures and I think you've posted pictures over the years as well, but, um, when you were, how old were you? Was this like college time frame when you were like competitive, a competitive gymnast? Well, I started when I was 10, mm -hmm. uh, and I started, you know, going, you know, two times a week, I think for mm -hmm. an hour or two. And then little by little, I started getting better and I started liking it quite a bit. And my coach in that little gym said, I'm going to recommend you to this other gym where they have a really good team. And, uh, you know, there's not that much more I can do for you in this gym. So you mm -hmm. should go over there. So I went over there and I auditioned and, you know, I, I was pretty good on floor exercise. So I sucked on some of the things that I kind of <laughs> never did, like pommel horse, for example, was always mm -hmm. my nemesis. But I was I was pretty good at, at floor exercise, so they they admitted me to their team, and uh, I started training every day, like uh, wow. between four, five, six hours a day, yeah, Monday through Saturday, and it was it was a great uh, thing to experience what your body can do if you really really train it, which is mm -hmm. kind of like playing drums or playing any instrument, you know? right? But but gymnastics is pretty extreme in the sense that you are really training your body to do this amazing things that you know how how can you lift up from the ground and do like two flips with two twists at the same time and and land and and stick the landing you know it's it's pretty incredible and uh i always was it was a very uh kind of uh j just uh i i couldn't stay still when i was a kid you know, mm -hmm. I was always doing little flips and stuff like that, completely untrained. So when I finally started doing gymnastics, I was like, oh man, this is this is heaven for me. And I, oh. I, I loved it. And, and it was also that that immersive thing, you know, concentrate uh, all your energy, mental and physical, and try to do this really kind of thing that you're not supposed to be doing. Your body's not designed to do those things. But Absolutely. you train it and, and you can. and obviously what i got from it uh that was kind of feeding on each other you know the music and the gymnastics the discipline side of things mm -hmm. and and how if you focus your energy and and you do it and methodically then how you can start seeing results on the mm -hmm. other side you know so i was doing both at the same time and i was kind of going crazy for a little while because i was doing music school in the morning which was the conservatory which I was studying classical piano, I was not studying drums. So drums mm -hmm. I was I was doing on my own on the side with a private teacher. Then mm -hmm. I would go to the conservatory and do classical piano and all my classical uh, subjects. And then I would go to high school right after that from like two in the afternoon to like six. And then at six, I would run to the gym and stay there on like until 10. Wow. Uh, so it was it was a crazy, crazy period of my life but it was it was just incredible to to just to to do something and start seeing results and and really commit to something mm -hmm. and especially i i feel like most people never commit to a sport at that 
level. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you, you can do a little bit of sports when you're in the high school or, or in junior high or whatever, but to really, you know, I was, I was in the junior national team and wow. we were competing and we were traveling and stuff like that. And it was just great to see, you know, what your body can do if you put your, your, your mind to it. It was a, a fantastic experience. Absolutely. And I think that's like a life lesson too, in general, just like what can be done. I think a lot of people don't start something because it seems impossible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, luckily, you know, yeah, when, you, when you're young and you're, I mean, I was a kid, you know, you're, you're not thinking, yeah. you know, too far ahead into the future. So you're just, just doing it. Just and then, it. of course, the only bad thing about it is that gymnastics is a wonderful sport. But if you do it a lot, you really get injured. So mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of little injuries from, from my gymnastics days, my ankles, my knees, my lower back, especially that has been kind of an ongoing thing mm-hmm. uh, since I retired when I was 21. So I already had a little bit of, of a back issue. And then <clears throat> as the years have gone by, it got really bad for a while. Then it got a little better. It's been kind of up and down mm-hmm. for years now, but I have to, start doing some research again because last time i did it must have been like um, 12 years ago mm-hmm. uh, going to different doctors and seeing what i can do about my lower back pain uh, and nobody recommended surgery everybody was like yeah you, we can see that you're messed up but you're mm-hmm. not messed up enough for surgery right <laughs> so i've been kind of dealing with with that uh, kind of low level pain but mm. it's constant yeah you know? So I'm. I really would like to do something about it so that my just my quality of life improves a little bit. Absolutely, yes. And I think that was the context that we were talking about uh, you being a gymnast in that context because we were talking about your back pain um, yeah. years and years back. But yeah, chronic chronic pain like that can just be something that's uh, uh, you know long term annoyance daily. So I hope. I hope that um, that you're able to to figure out a fix for that. And I know um, it's tough when there's not like a clear cut answer, like do this and it will fix it completely. Exactly. Um, Sometimes I almost wanted them to tell to tell me, well, if you do not do surgery, then you will not be able to, you know, something that was right. a little bit more extreme so that I had almost no choice. Mm-hmm. But but right now it's a little bit in the in the limbo. But uh the technology has advanced so much in the last mm-hmm. 10 years so that i would like to see again what other choices there are right now yes. versus 12 12 years ago i'm sure it's a completely different ballgame right now so For we'll sure. see yeah yes, but, well, but but i can i can manage you know i mean if i'm i have to be careful i have to be mindful i have to be aware of what i'm doing my mm-hmm. posture and a lot of people tell me man it's just your posture is so good when you're when you're playing and the thing is if it's not then it, it starts hurting so sure. that's kind of like a, a thing that i have to do in order for for me to be okay but when i wake up in the morning for example i have to slouch my back like for 20 minutes and i can really go into a c i mean my back is, is pretty amazing how flexible mm-hmm. it can be and mm-hmm. then i start the the pain start kind of go, going away little by little and then, and then i'm kind of okay and then i do a lot of um uh conditioning and, and flexibility and stuff so it's it's manageable but it could definitely be better that's yeah that's good it's good to know that it's manageable I, those stretches like the cat the cat pose and then 
you know, the, the opposite of it, the yoga stretches, I always found um, really great for back. And I think it's a drumming, it's a drummer thing, like back, back pain also, like, yeah, like yeah, you said, sure. if your posture's not correct, and if you're spending a lot of time sitting at the drums and, you know, if you're reaching too much, I think, I think a lot of those things can affect you, but. Um, yeah. And also, you know, because I love doing sports, I used to play squash and high oh. ally and, you know, all these things. So recently I was in Mexico and, uh, I, I was playing soccer with my nephew and then all of a sudden I just felt like this pain and in my inner thigh, my left inner thigh, I'm like, oh, great. So I went to the doctor and I had a little tear. So like, oh no. Awesome. And then the tear got better. And then I played squash with my other nephew and then my ankle. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like, I, I, I feel like I, I'm still young, but then my body's telling me, eh, you gotta be careful now. Right, and, right. And, and I I also is all those nagging injuries from, from gymnastics that are still there. And I feel like, oh, I'm just gonna do this real quick without, you know, I know I have to put like a bandage or something in my ankle because it's kind of fragile. And all yeah. these things that I know, but I just get excited because I wanna play. And, yeah. and then I pay the consequences. But yeah, the, you know. the childlike excitement comes out. Exactly. But, <laughs> but 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 flying planes, that's a good hobby because you're not you're not, you know, causing injury to yourself. So yeah, except if you kill yourself when you <laughs> you crash. Oh well, yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't. <laughs> you know, try not to do that. <laughs> don't do that. Oh my goodness. All right. So so we've got we're kind of up to date on what you've been up to, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, and I just want to like go back in time a little bit and talk about your start in music um, when you were super young in Mexico. Um, I think I, I read that you started playing professionally like as a as a teenager. Is that right? Well, professionally in the sense that I was making a little money and I was playing around Mexico and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, when I was five, the official story is uh, my mother, Susana, has a brother, Nacho. Nacho had a, a, a girlfriend, Anna, and Anna had a, a brother, Fito, and Fito was a drunk. Okay. So one time, uh, Nacho, my uncle, was babysitting me, and then we went to, to Anna's place, and they opened the door, and the first thing that I saw in the living room was this amazing... Ludwig Vistalite kit, wow. like the John, like the one John Bonham used to play, and it wow. just looked like a spaceship, you know, and and it had all these boom stands, like kind of facing inwards, and he had a lot of symbols, like really low. It was just like a, a like sublime view, mm -hmm. you know. I just fell in love with with just the the, the look of it, and then uh, he came downstairs and he started playing. I mean, I remember he he played "Fall Out of Love" on the stereo and was playing along. So to me, that was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then I started taking lessons with him. And my lessons would be to just bring my favorite records, which were all the records my mom was listening to. My mom was, uh, is still an avid uh, music fan and she's a, a rock and roller, you know, uh, all the way. So I was listening to a lot of uh, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, um, mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimi Hendrix. So those, that that kind of music was the one I, I kind of wanted to play. So I would bring along my my LPs, and he would he taught me a little bit how of technique, and then uh, we just started doing it. You know, playing along to the records. So my first experiences were always musical, um, like playing music, not so much mm -hmm. like chops and and concentrating on those kinds of things. 
but right. it was mainly just to imitate what Ringo was doing or what Charlie Watts was doing or what what uh, John Bonham was doing. So it was a really good good way to to start. And then in the meantime, I was very curious about what the instrument could do uh, without me really knowing it. I mean, I hadn't seen one instructional video, nothing. I don't think those things even existed back then. Right, right. Yeah, so I was just, you know, sitting on on uh, on my drums and and I would just start improvising, mm-hmm. uh, and I would spend hours and hours just just fooling around. So little by little, I started really kind of falling in love with the idea of improvisation, even though I had nothing to do with jazz at that moment. So it was more coming from the rock and roll perspective, but I was improvising with those tools. And mm-hmm. then when I heard uh neil perry for the first time and the first uh album i heard was exit stage left which has the yyz uh legendary drum solo and that was that was you know mind mind blowing at the same time i I discovered stuart copeland so then my my um concept of drumming started changing Mm. uh from from ringo and charlie watts to all of a sudden be like wow this this instrument can be very very protagonistic and still right. be able to play music. Uh, so I did that for for a while, and I, w- I got obsessed with just Neil Peart and Stuart Copeland for years. And that's all I wanted to do, and my drums had kind of looked like a, a mix of both of them. Um, it was the most insanely uncomfortable thing to play. I mean, <laughs> because I had my double bass drum, but my hi-hat was all the way over there, and my f- legs were completely spread open so that I could, you know, reach, it, it was just anything. not, <laughs> it was not designed uh, really to be played that thing. But, you know, it, it just looked so cool to me to have a two right. bass drum. I, I had a Tam, uh, Tama Swing Star uh, mm-hmm. Blue, and then I got this crappy drum set that was really cheap because I all I could afford, but it was also blue. And then yes. I put them together. Put them together, had, yes. <laughs> this massive kid and if you look closely like wait a minute there's something <laughs> yes i did the same thing as a kid yeah. i did the exact same thing yeah you have to i mean the double basham thing is uh, something we it. all have to go through huh? yes <laughs> so it was not very comfortable to play but it, it looked great and and that ha- that kid never left my house like mm-hmm. even if i had gigs it, it would never fit in a car mm-hmm. so I, I would always have to bring like a like a uh, 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 a small version of that, and I was doing gigs with my little rock bands and and stuff around Mexico. So you know, I was I was playing already when I was my first band that I remember kids coming to my house. I was like nine or something like mm. that. Wow! Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was it was really cool to just you know be be doing it from such a young age. Absolutely. And how did you, you mention you, you were um, at the conservatory for uh, classical piano? How did that transition happen? Um, well, I, I saw the movie Amadeus. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it blew me away. I was like, wow. And somebody that young that can write symphonies and operas and stuff like mm-hmm. that, it really fascinated me. You know, the idea of a, of a genius kid. Right. Mozart was. So I was very young too. I was, I was still a kid and I was like, you know, I want to be like that. And, and I, my, my musical diet was 
rock and roll through my mom. And then during lunchtime, because we live with uh, with my grandparents, mm -hmm. lunchtime, my grandfather would play classical music. Oh, okay. So then I was always listening to classical music every day a little bit and then rock and roll. So that was, those, those were my two main, uh, main uh, dietary supplements of, of music. And then right. uh, when I saw Amadeus, you know, it, it all kind of uh, made sense to me like, wow, you know, classical music and then I can play drums and blah, 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 blah. So uh, yeah, I got myself in the conservatory and I was just practicing like if I was gonna be a concert piano player someday mm -hmm. but i was playing drums most of the day so to be honest i was not the best piano player in, in school because <laughs> I, I had this mistress that was always like going like no 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 play me mm -hmm. and i love playing drums more than i love playing piano so you know at one point i was like you know maybe maybe uh, this dual thing i mean it's great that i learned to play piano and i learned all these yeah. things about music but that's when I decided that maybe the best thing would be for me to really pursue drumming and, and try to go to, to Berkeley. So that's what happened in 1993. I applied in 1991, I think, and then I left in 1993. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, yeah. I mean, that it makes so much sense, but um, it's, I'm sure, served you well having that training on piano in your your musical journey you know absolutely. just on drums that's great absolutely and i and i tell all the drummers that that i can or students you know you have to to play at least uh, a little bit of piano because mm -hmm. piano has you know it has rhythm it has harmony it has melody you can, it's very visual very graphic you can see it's great for 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 um composing Mm -hmm. you know, for producing anything you want to do, if you know how to play a little bit of keyboards, you know, the, the, yes. the world is your, your oyster. And back then I saw it as, okay, this is classical music and this is jazz or this is rock or, or, or whatever. And it was, it wasn't until much later that I really started relating things and, and, and kind of joining the dots of, of why why it is that this thing is like this, and then I would look back at classical music and like oh I I, I start understanding now. For example, uh, when I improvise, my main thing is storytelling, mm -hmm. you know, motivic development. How mm -hmm. can I sustain a fifteen minute drum solo without without it getting bored but right. boring? And and I started gr grabbing from the things that I learned from classical music, like analyzing Mozart or analyzing Beethoven, and see how they would develop one motif and turn it around, do it slower, do it faster, do it major, do it minor, mm -hmm. uh, turn it around like if it was a mirror image of what they just did. So it, it was just fascinating to to learn that. But at the moment, at, at, at the time, I didn't really make the connection without what I was trying to do as a jazz musician improvising. So right. it wasn't until many, many years later that I started using what I what I learned in classical music and applying it to to my storytelling uh, as a improv improvising musician. Right. And that and that's incredible to think about because you know I think of you as this I, I think of jazz when I think of you. Um, I love that you grew up on rock and roll and classical music and um when i met you you were you were playing with um pat metheny and 
it just it's just stuck in my head like Antonio synonymous with jazz music. But then mm. all the things that you've done and the Grammy nominated albums and the albums that you've led and it's like this amazing array of music and it makes so much sense thinking about you coming from this background where you have really like this depth of of musical um influence and knowledge and so it kind of like all comes together so i can totally see you using that in what you have done yourself over the years yeah well thank you uh and yes i think the most uh i think the best thing a musician can do is just kind of realize who you are where you came from what your influences are or where uh what your new thing can be uh and combine it all you know mm -hmm. i think it's very important especially as a jazz musician to try to have your own voice your own sound that yeah. somebody listens to a record and we're like oh that this is this is miles or this is charlie parker or this chicorio this is pad Metheny. you know people that really developed a very strong identity and just within a couple of bars you knew who it was you know to yeah. me that that was incredible and same thing with Tony Williams, same thing, same thing with Philly Joe, and same thing with uh, Elvin Jones and Max and mm -hmm. all those guys that really kind of were creating drumming as we know it, uh, you know, at, at that point. So it was it was just really a really cool thing to to do all the, the research of you know why why you know. I don't know. Jack DeJohnette plays the way he plays. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I come from, or where you know, Vinny or Dave Weckl or Steve Gadd. I mean, whoever, name it. Yes. Uh, and and you can start tracing back what where the lineage. Absolutely. You know, but, but for me, uh, the, when I started playing jazz, it was when I was in the conservatory, and they had an ongoing jazz workshop in there, and I was just practicing my classical piano and then I would listen to the big band like kind of far away. I was like, wow, that sounds kind of cool. But I was still into mm -hmm. rock and roll. I was not into into jazz at all. As a matter of fact, my mom tried to play me an Art Blakey record mm -hmm. when I was heavily into my Russian police phase. And I was like, nah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> there's, there's no backbeat and I'm not feeling it, you know, it kind sure. of sounds like I was old, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And especially the, the Rush and Police records were so well produced; they sounded great. Mm -hmm. you know? So then I'm trying to listen with the, those same ears to Art Blakey. You know, it just didn't make sense to me. And right. of course, years later, I was like studying Art Blakey, trying to figure out how he was doing what he was doing. But yeah. I was not ready. I was not ready at that moment. Right. 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 But when I was in that um, in, in the conservatory and I would hear that jazz workshop on the small combos and the big band, blah, 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 uh, I started making friends with some of these kids. And uh, one of them talking to them, uh, he told me, oh, well, you know, if you're you like this kind of music, uh, maybe you will like this. And he gave me a cassette and it's a Chicory electric band. And mm. I went home and I checked it out and it just blew me away. Yes. Because it had a lot of the same elements that I liked from rock and roll, which was, you know, big drum sound and electric instruments, but mm -hmm. they were improvising and playing this incredibly complex music. But I, I even though I was not, I couldn't really understand everything that was going on, it, the energy really kind of hit me. 
And I was like, right. man, I, I want to learn how to do this. So I started getting my hands on on, on, on every Chikoria record I could. And then that led me to like Mahavishnu Orchestra, Padmatheni mm-hmm. Group, John Schofield. You know, so I, I started getting into jazz through fusion. Sure. Uh, because it was a lot more relatable to me. Right. Uh, yeah. At that moment. And that's so, a good transition. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, for me, it was completely logical. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Berkeley in 1993. And, and my idea was to really become a, a jazz drummer. But I was, I had a very fusionistic idea of what jazz was supposed to be. Right. Right. You know, because that's what I was listening to in, in Mexico. And and I was not really studying with anybody at that point, so you know, I was just self-taught. You know, I mm-hmm. I bought the Weckl instructional videos and the Dennis mm-hmm. Chambers instructional video, and I was just trying to copy everything that that I could. You know, and I started working a lot on my technique. So by the time I got to Berkeley, I, I had pretty pretty good. Um, you know, I, I had chops. Yeah. Uh, but I was doing my double bass drum and uh, two hi-hats. And, you know, it, it was a very, very fusionistic approach yes. to the whole thing. And here I was in my in my jazz ensembles with that massive kid. And mm-hmm. the teachers would be like, uh, what have you been listening to? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we, we were supposedly playing uh, jazz or bebop. But mm-hmm. I really had no conception on, on how to play that. And then one day, which was, um, I always tell this and uh, this story on, on my clinics because it's it's a very good illustration of where I was at at the moment. So I was walking around my stick bag and, uh, you know, around Berkeley and my, this teacher, Ron Savage, he saw me and he was like, oh, you're, you're a drummer, right? Because I see your stick bag. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's happening? I said, well, I have a, an eight semester bebop ensemble. Mm-hmm. And the drummer didn't show up. Do you want to play? I'm like, sure. And I went to get my drums, and I had this massive Yamaha Power V Special kit. Yes, I yeah. have that kit. You had one? <laughs> <laughs> so it was my first kit in Boston because I I, uh, I didn't bring a kit from Mexico. So I bought like a used, very cheap Power V Special, but mm-hmm. it was big sizes. Yes. with 22-inch bass drum, yes. 10, 12, 14 <laughs> power toms. And, and I remember the the tom holder that goes on the bass room was yes, massive. I mean, you could huge. kill yeah. somebody with that thing. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a great weapon. So I I brought my whole kid and I started setting up all my symbols. I had like seven symbols. I remember uh, all were very shiny, very bright sounding. My two yeah. hi hats, my double bass drum pedal, and uh, all the kids were looking at me like, what is going on over here? Because it's a, a bebop ensemble, you know. But I was first semester, there were eight semesters. And I had yeah. never really played bebop with people that knew how to do it. So, but I kept thinking, man, I'm just going to impress the hell out of all these kids right now. And they put a, a sheet music in front of me and said, pent up house. I was like, wow, I've never seen this. But I knew how to read music because I, I came from the conservatory, but I didn't know how to interpret drum charts mm-hmm. or or lead sheets. You know, I didn't know exactly what to do with that information, but I could tell there was a melody and there was some some letters on top where the chord changes, but I didn't really, never really dealt with chord changes before. So I was a little confused, but, you know, they said, okay, swing. So the teacher starts going like that and me coming from mexico and playing rock that to me was always one and three 
-hmm. you know so all of a sudden he goes like one two one two three and i was like what they count backwards over here everything is different <laughs> in this country <laughs> i was totally blown away by it. and and well i came in i started playing and uh, as soon as i started feeling uh, more or less comfortable i just started kind of trying to show off you know mm -hmm. just trying to impress everybody mm -hmm. by playing a lot of chops and and they i they immediately called my bluff you know especially the, the ron and he started just taking things away from me from my drum set basically started he started tearing my whole drum set apart mm -hmm. it only left me with hi-hat bass drum snare drum and right cymbal mm -hmm. and he was like okay now let's hear you solo and of course you know i i couldn't do absolutely anything and that was a huge wake-up call for me because oh. I realized how much I had been relying on just my specific setup, and I didn't really know how to, uh, you know, play and improvise without all those elements that I knew how to do my licks and my patterns. And if you took that away from me, I was kind of uh, done. So yeah. it was a great learning experience. And then from there, I started having a little bit more of a humble attitude towards music, it was a huge blow to my ego, but it was one of the best things that could have happened to me at that moment. Sure, yeah, and like what an endorsement for um, great teachers and instructional situations like that. I love Ron Savage, shout out to Ron Ron Savage because he's, yeah, so, great. The best. he's yeah. so great. He, he's great and he really, I mean, he could tell first that I was utterly depressed by what had just happened yeah, and he was course. not he was not you know feeling happy about it mm -hmm. he saw that I was sad and he was like man let me talk to you for a second mm -hmm. everybody had left already and uh, and he said you know I can I can tell that you put a lot of work into your instrument so I respect mm -hmm. that but let's just focus on what you need to listen to and what you work on if you want right. to play this music and then right. he gave me a big discography and one of the things that really kind of blew my mind the same way like the chicory electric band blew my mind or rush blew my mind or led zeppelin blew my mind was miles davis with tony williams ron carter george coleman um, and herbie um, my funny valentine four and more the live album in town hall which i had no idea what they were doing but i felt the same energy and i was like i don't know what's happening here but i yes. can see it's something very different from what i've been listening to because right. the band the whole band was really morphing like if it was like a, a this bubble of energy mm -hmm. and, and it was just fascinating how they they could switch the whole band could switch in a second from one vibe to another vibe and i was like i want to learn how to do that and that's mm -hmm. when i really started focusing into just just real real improvisation yeah and i i think of you as an amazing improviser and also like when i think about your kit and the way that you play and the sound the tones things like that it's like so it's transitioned so much from that time period i mean i could picture you you know darker warmer tones and in, in the instruments that you play and then always getting incredible sound out of even if you're just if you're even even if you're playing a small kit with like one symbol yeah i mean and so it's just that it's just amazing over the years um how that's transitioned i i also love that you had the power v kit too because that was that was like the kit right <laughs> 
That was the kid. It, 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 I mean, to me, it was just cheap and big yes, and, it's, yes. and it's good. And I was like, man, this, this is the kid for me. Yeah, that was that was my first kit as well. Um, so, so great. But, um, you know, and I, I think about like the work that you did um, on Birdman as being so, um, so like different and out there and innovative Um, So I just, I love, I feel, I feel like it's inspirational to hear where you came from playing in a really specific way and the way that you transitioned into like basically being able to do anything. Well, I mean, to me, that's the essence of being a a jazz drummer. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, jazz nowadays is just the, the medium that has helped me just do whatever the hell. I want to do right and not only drumming wise but also compositionally mm-hmm. so if you know enough about rhythm about melody about harmony and you have good references in your mind of what sounds good and what mm-hmm. doesn't sound good mm-hmm. and that of course listening to all the masters you know from the, the very beginning to to the young masters of today you know mm-hmm. listening to everybody and then you have a lot of points of reference of like you know is this is this up to does it does this pass the smell test you know if you're writing right. something or if you just improvise something you know am i doing something with depth here or or is it just i'm just kind of blowing chops or am i you know that kind of um self-awareness i think is incredibly mm. important for mm-hmm. for any decision because you know nowadays with all the information that there's out there i mean you everybody has points of references but it just depends on on if you're have been listening to the right stuff or not mm-hmm. you know so i was lucky to still be part of the generation that was mentored by by people you know so yes. played, you know 18 years with uh, pat metheny uh, like a few years with uh, gary burden uh, with Chicoria, with um, Paquito de Rivera, you know, with my Latin years in the beginning that I was playing with Danilo Perez, with David Sanchez, with Miguel Senon, that was heavily, heavily uh, Latin influence, but it was very, very deep. You know, yeah. it was not just your average Latin jazz. These guys were kind of transforming the way Latin jazz was being played and conceptualized. So I had to know all the rules of, of Latin music, Afro-Cuban, Brazilian, Panamanian, Puerto Rican, um, you know, it was a great, great immersive uh, time for me to learn all those things. But then when we would play Latin music, we would play it with a totally jazz approach. Mm-hmm. So it was very open, but if you didn't know the rules and how the clave worked, you know, you, you couldn't do it. Right. You know, you couldn't just play the patterns because we were opening up as if it was uh, bebop, basically. Yeah. So yeah. the interaction and everything was coming from jazz, but all the rhythms, all the patterns were coming from from uh, Latin music. So that that was a great time for me to to really develop that vocabulary. And I feel like now my playing is totally influenced by that still, but it has transformed so much that you can't really recognize, oh, well, that comes from, from you know, Latin or this comes from Afro-Cuban. It just has kind of uh, come out in my playing without me really thinking about it too much. It's just, I did so much of it that now it's just, it's just there. 
but yeah. also all my rock playing is kind of there. Uh, and then all my bebop playing is there. So basically now what I try to do is just let all of that come out and use jazz as the main uh, medium for me to be able to express all, all those things. But mm -hmm. if I, I love just like locking into a really heavy backbeat or, or into whatever it is that is needed at the moment or that I hear in my head at the moment. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of jazz musicians, they try to be so cryptic all the time in their playing. Like mm -hmm. if I can be so complex that nobody understands what I'm doing, that's great. You know, right. and I, I used to think that for 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 a few years, uh, I would I would sacrifice musicality for the sake of complexity. Mm. And I was like, man, we're so killing right now. I'm sure nobody can understand what we're doing. <laughs> that that is horrible nowadays. Right. You know, I want to relate to people. You know, I don't want to leave them behind. I mm -hmm. I want to bring them with me in in the journey. Or yeah. whatever it is that we're doing we, i want them to be there with us and yeah. i used to enjoy myself when i could feel the audience being like wow man what what is going on over here mm -hmm. you know now i i i want them to understand what i'm doing because at the end of the day music and whatever it is that you're doing as a musician as a drummer you're just trying to communicate something and if you are not communicating it then i feel like you're failing in your mission to to just put yourself out there in a way that that people will will be able to relate to in in some way you know and i and i think jazz uh has become smaller and smaller and smaller smaller audiences because it can be so cryptic mm -hmm. so i feel like like jazz now is going through a better period where it's being fused with with hip hop with uh with rock with uh you know more groove music mm -hmm. that is making a little bit more accessible yeah uh, and, and i think that's a good trend i like that i like that and i can see that with you as well antonio because anytime i've seen you play or present a master class um it's it's relatable you're like imparting knowledge that's understood to the audience and i think that's really important not just in like a a, you know, a drumming situation, but like in a musical situation, I, I love to see music where I feel something, I feel a connection there. Um, I feel that communication. And I, and I love yeah. that. And to me, that's, you know, that's the most important part. Uh, like in the beginning of my clinics, I usually ask uh, how many drummers in the house? And mm -hmm. then, you know, everybody raises their, their hand. Mm -hmm. And my second question is like, how many musicians in the house? Yes. Uh, and they're like, uh, you know, they don't know if they should raise their hand or not. And I said, well, that's the first mistake. You should consider yourselves musicians that just happen to play drums. Mm -hmm. But you cannot be a musician unless you know how to play music, how to communicate uh, musical ideas through your instrument. Right. So I, one of my favorite parts that I've been doing in the clinics is like, you know, I explain about motivic uh, development, about melody, repetition, how to use space. Mm -hmm. You know, for a drummer, it's very hard to leave space. Sometimes mm -hmm. you feel like you leave one bar of space and it's, oh my God, it's, you know, so much space. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Right. So uh, I try to tell them that they have to make space their friend 
space can work to your advantage in like the most beautiful ways if you know how to use it and yeah. dynamics and all that stuff. So I usually bring, I ask for a volunteer. It can be somebody that is a like a total pro or somebody that has been playing drums for, for two months. And I have them, okay, play something. And then they usually play something and like, okay, play, play it again. And if they can't, then I'm like, okay, so that's your first mistake. You have to be able to remember what you just played because you're gonna have to repeat it. And then they play something simple and then, okay, play it again. And they, they're able to repeat, okay, so now play it slower, play it faster, play it softer. You know, now add something at the end. And I give them a, a few little pointers. And at the end of those five minutes that I spend with them on stage with everybody watching, everybody can tell the difference that they are making music. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's one of the most, like one of the most beautiful moments when somebody that is doing it is like, oh, wow. Yes, I, I see, I see what's happening here because yeah. I just played the same thing and then I left space and then that gave me time to think and then I repeated it, but I added a, a thing at the end. Mm-hmm. So, and then the next time around, I maybe I'll play it a little softer and then I, I add a different thing. And then they start kind of seeing the line of the idea. And then you can see it in the audience too. They're like, oh, I, I understand what's happening now. So I was like, okay, that's how you make music. It's very simple. And you don't have to be an expert technician in order to start making music. You yeah. can, uh, sometimes the best little solos that, that happen in this kind of situation are the, the guys that almost don't know how to play. Mm-hmm. Because they're not really focusing on what my hands can do. They're focusing on just the sound of the oh, idea. Wow. And then and then they have to play simpler because they don't have that, that much technique. And uh, that yeah. sometimes yields the best results, simplicity and then clarity of ideas. So to me, that that's one of the main things that I always try to drill on drummers, you know, music, music, music. Every time you practice, you can practice musically. Even if you're doing just patterns or you're practicing with a metronome, you can make it musical, play with mm-hmm. dynamics. You know, how how is your volume? You know, how's your right cymbal volume versus your hi-hat volume? And why are you stumping on the bass drum like that? Right. You know? <laughs> Right. So it, those kinds of little things, like every time you practice, even if you're practicing independence with a metronome, whatever it is that you're doing, you can do it in a musical way. And that is going to, you know, drill it into your head that every time mm-hmm. you sit on the drums, you can do all these things. Otherwise, you're practicing at home a certain way. You get to the gig and you haven't been doing it. You know, you haven't been playing with dynamics. You haven't been playing, you know, over the, the uh, blues form mm-hmm. with uh, trying to do motivic development. You haven't practiced those things. So right. how do you expect to kill it on the gig? You know, right. all of a sudden. So Absolutely. I tell them you have to practice those things at home. You know, practice over all the things you are, uh, you know, in a few different tempos and then sing the melody where you play. If you do that at home, when you get to the gig, you would have already done it a few times and it's not going to be like nerve wracking and you're actually going to be able to make some music. Yeah, that's great advice. Really, really great advice. And and I just like what you what you just said, I want to go back and touch just for a minute on the Birdman soundtrack because and I know you've talked at length about this and answered lots of questions <laughs> about this, but um to me, and I'm a really I know I've said it on this podcast a bunch of times, I'm really really into 
uh, movie soundtracks, I feel like it, it can make or break the movie. And when you mm-hmm. have a really great soundtrack, it just enhances the story. It, you know, so, so, so much. Um, and thinking about the Birdman soundtrack, I mean, you had to carry that, the feeling of the entire movie on the drums and talk about making it musical, making the drums musical. It is the perfect example of that, I think, because you're literally telling a story for the entire span of the movie using just the drums. Yeah, but you know what? What was what I realized was cool about what happened was that in the beginning I tried when when Inari to the director, he told me, okay, make me some demos. You know, do something fast, something energetic, something pensive, something slow. You know, just give me different vibes. Mm-hmm. And I was really going uh, about it like if it was going to be a, a film score that had themes, right? So every time Michael Keaton came on on, on the screen, uh, I would have this rhythmic theme happening, this beat, mm-hmm. right? And then when Ed Norton came on 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 the screen, then you would hear a different beat. beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was trying to go about it like that. And, and I sent him the demos and he said, man, I love the demos, but they're exactly the opposite of what I'm looking for. You know, that's not at all where I'm going with this. And then I, that really puzzled me. I was like, man, I'm kind of lost. I, I don't know what to do. Right. So he said, I'm looking for just, you know, more organic, improvised, uh, jazzy. And then when he said that, I was like, okay, so then maybe I'll, I just need to be myself. You know, mm. I'm trying to do things in a way that is not what I would normally do. Right. So maybe I just need to react to whatever it is that I'm seeing or it's happening the same way I, I would react. Like if I'm playing with a band. Right. Like that now the medium is different. But as a jazz musician, I've, tr- I've been training to react to whatever is happening in front of me in the moment. Right. That's that's the 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 the, the most valuable asset that a jazz musician, well, or any musician should have, you know, adaptation to whatever is going on in front of you. Mm-hmm. So uh, the way it happened is the first demos we did were without the movie. The movie had not been been uh, shot yet. They were starting to. Mm-hmm. We went into the studio, just the director and me, and we worked off of the script completely. So he would explain all the scenes to me, and and he would just have me improvise over that. So I would oh. be imagining, you know, according to what he just told me, he's in his uh, desk and he's doing this, and then he gets up and then goes through the hallway, opens the door. So I, I'm thinking about that, and he's sitting in front of me in the studio because I told him, please. Let's imagine the scene together so I, I can get the timing right. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be improvising, but whenever you see that the character opened the door, please raise your hand so that I wow. can see that, okay, that's that's where you are in the scene. So I would be just looking at him while I was improvising, and then he would go like that, and he has his, his eyes closed, and he would go like that. Okay, so now he opened the door, so I would do a crash and then go into a different thing. And, and it was just very intuitive and very organic you know just yeah. the way I, I usually try to play and and that really started working so we did all those uh, scenes we did the whole movie just with the script and then when they had already shot the film and that they had a rough cut 
then they superimposed those demos on mm -hmm. top of it just to see what worked and what didn't. And then we did everything again from beginning to end, but now looking at the film. And of course, the director had chosen the things that he really liked about the demos and then the things that he didn't like. Then we talked about it and then we, we did it in a different way. But one of the, the cool things was that he told me, you know, the demos, even though they're great, they sound really good. Like your drums sound really good. And mm. this movie happens in the bowels of an old Broadway theater. Mm -hmm. So like the drums sound too pristine for what we're seeing. So how can you make your drums sound old? And they've been in storage for 50 years, you know? <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's a good challenge. So then I started just like taping drums and I would put a t-shirt on it and just detune them just to kind of make them sound as crappy yeah. as I could. I started stacking symbols to make them sound mm -hmm. really trash mm -hmm. and old. And that started working really well with with the vibe of the movie and with the, the image. So then we did everything from beginning to end. And, uh, and of course, now because we were looking at it, now he would give me very specific instructions. Like, okay, whenever mm -hmm. you see him hitting the, the wall the third time, you know, do, give me something big there. So, you know, I'll be looking while I'm improvising and then, oh, one, two, you know, and then I would, yeah. I would do something like and, and it was just very, uh, because it was it was all so organic, it was very easy. You know, I we yeah. did the whole thing in a day and a half, just like wow. me, just doing a bunch of takes of each thing and, mm -hmm. and then they chose what they liked the best. And it was just a, a crazy experience to, uh, just to hear my drums to begin with in the movie theater, Mm -hmm. uh, because I did, I did it, and then I went on tour. We were on tour with Pat like for eight months that year. Yeah, and uh, and I knew the movie had opened, but we couldn't see it because we we're in Asia, and it was oh, not going to no. be in Asia for a while. So right. I started seeing reviews of like the the score is so blah blah. blah. I'm not like because honestly, when I saw the rough cut, it didn't have color correction. It was not edited. Uh, it 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 had my previous drums, like the mm -hmm. demo drums. So when I saw it, it didn't really quite hit me. You know, right. I was like, "Oh, it's an interesting movie," but it it was not finished yeah. at all. Right. So then I did the second round of uh, of the I, I did the second session and I left. So I never saw the the finished product. So then finally I came home. And Tana and I went to a, a movie theater in New York and Chelsea, like at two in the afternoon, because I want I, I wanted to be there with nobody, you know. I just wanted to be there by myself, basically with mm -hmm. Tana. And and uh, we're there, and then all of a sudden the movie starts, and the first thing I hear is my voice in Spanish, in the very beginning of the movie. It's the first thing you hear, and I was like, "What the hell is this?" And then all of a sudden my drums start coming in with with all these letters that start kind of creeping mm -hmm. into the screen. Uh, and just to hear my drums and surround sound. Yes. They yeah. EQ the hell out of, I mean, they sound so good. And I, I was just blown away. I couldn't believe it. I, I bet. Not. I bet yeah. you were. I and I didn't know that that was your voice. I'm going to have to to go back and and listen to the beginning again. And I'll listen to the whole thing again. But um, I I saw the movie on a flight. Um, and I just I remember just having some like great headphones on, and I think I had a smile on my face the entire time. Like <laughs> it's a really kind of dark, gritty film, Very you dark. know. And but but I was just like 
this is the greatest. Like, <laughs> so, just so excited yeah. because it was, it was like your drums just, and the sounds, and I can hear you talking about the cymbals stacking and like, you know, tape on the drums and stuff. And it just, yeah, it sounded, it did sound like a kit. It sounded like the drums. This is all I can picture is like you go into New York and there's a house kit and the heads are who knows how old and yeah, whatever you like, got that's, right yeah. like that's what it sounded like to me it, but it was so good because it was so um organic like you just said it was it was just perfect so i yeah. don't know i could go on and on and talk about that anyone who has not seen the movie birdman go check it out and i also i never caught you in one of your performances playing to the movie because you did some of those like live um performances playing, oh, playing i've been doing that ever since yeah uh, and it's kind of still the gift that keeps on giving i mean i just yes, did huge show in, Mexico, uh, in uh in the beginning of december you know outdoors so mm -hmm. it, it's something that i think i will probably keep doing for the rest of my life yeah. because it's so unique it and, is. And, and and it's like a really weird combination between like a almost like a, a rock jazz show with the, with a movie so it's kind mm -hmm. of interactive uh but the great thing is that it's only me on stage mm -hmm. so i played for example disney hall the national auditorium in mexico i play like the most amazing concert halls all by myself wow uh, which i cannot even get with my own band you know i cannot right. I, I cannot you know get a gig in those places with my band but with the movie I can, and I usually ask, is it the first time that there's only a drummer on stage for the whole evening? And most of the time the answer is like, yes, because there's, you know, solo piano concerts or whatever, but when do you ever have a solo drum concert? Never. So right. uh, I've been incredibly lucky to be able to do this for for years now. And, yes. and it's it's fascinating to do it every time and I can change it up as I want to. And of course, I try to to keep the dramatic effect that was achieved in the movie. But but I, I one of the cool things about this particular project is that because the spirit of improvisation was there from the beginning, that's what mm -hmm. the director wanted. Then when I do it in front of different people in different uh, halls, different theaters, of course, I want to keep the same spirit. So then I improvise the whole thing, and then at the end, I do once the movie ends. I do like a 15 or 20 minute solo all by myself with, mm -hmm. with no moving. I just keep going since the audience is there. I started saying like, well, it's it's a great opportunity to just keep playing. Yeah. You know, I used to finish with the movie, but then after a while I was like, man, I, I read a review that said, you know, great, but I wish I could have heard Antonio improvise a little bit more. Wow. So then, okay. so then I was like, okay. Why not? Well, let's do and, that. Yeah. And I started doing 15, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And and also the, the really cool thing is that when you think about it, how many people have heard a drum solo that lasts more than a few seconds? You know, unless you go to a jazz gig, even if there's an open drum solo, it's not a 20-minute drum solo. Right. It's very rare to, to mm -hmm. hear that. So to all of a sudden have all these people that are not necessarily jazz audiences, but they just want to see the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I give them 20 minutes of drums. You know, this is exactly when all that motivic development and storytelling comes into play. 
for me. I love right. to not have a specific thing that I'm, I know I want to do and just kind of start from scratch and using the tools that I know how to use, just play a completely different drum solo every every time I do it. And then I usually come outside and uh, I come out and talk to people. And you know, before COVID, I would sign things, blah, 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 talk to people. Mm-hmm. And one of the most beautiful things that they would say to me is like, I never knew drums could do this. You know, I never heard a drum solo and I just didn't know that that, mu- that drums could sound that way. Wow. You know? so to me, that, that was the best compliment. Somebody that had absolutely no knowledge of drums or jazz or anything, just to be able to enjoy a 20 minute drum solo. That's that's when that's what we were talking about earlier about communication. If you yes. don't do it and you you just play a drum solo with a bunch of licks and chops and and like well, I've been to a million drum clinics where after two minutes I'm like, man, there's no music in this. It's just kind sure. of drums and drums and drums. So um, to me, the biggest compliment is when I can sustain uh, a long, long solo for somebody that has absolutely no knowledge of drums and, and right. keep them entertained you know, and communicate. Yeah. That's a huge compliment. I love that. And please keep keep doing that so I can actually see you <laughs> perform yeah. that. <laughs> because, um, um, and before we go, because I know we're going long, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about your um 2017 uh grammy nominated bad ombre album because i just i feel like that's the culmination of all of the things we've talked about today your musical history and um coming from mexico and come in living in the u.s and your you know all of the things that kind of made you you coming out in this album um which is an incredible album. It's, it's so much like a story in contained in this album. And um, I just, I want to kind of like point people to that. I'll, I'll put a link in the description and in the podcast um, um, notes as well. So that, so that people can check that out if they haven't heard it, because it's so good. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. I, I really also feel like uh, that album, because that was after Birdman. So, mm-hmm. Obviously, when I saw the reaction to the Birdman soundtrack, I was like, what else can I do that has ma- the, the drums at, as the main ingredient? But it's not just a bunch of drum solos. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I hate those kinds of uh, albums that is just a vehicle to show, you know, all your, your soloing skills. I mean, if you show them in a, in a musical way, I'm, I'm all for that. But drum records sometimes tend to, do, tend to be a little boring to me. Uh, I I much rather listen to just a you know music. I, mm-hmm. I don't care how the, you know what the drums are doing. If they're doing a lot, that's great. But if if they're if if they're just doing what needs to be done for the music, that to me that that's much better. Sure. But anyway, this this album uh, came about me wanting to do something with the the, the protagonist being the drum set. And then uh, trying to figure out how to what how to do it so that it would be a very experimental thing for me, something right. that was completely different than anything I, I've done before. So I had my band migration, and we had been doing a bunch of uh, albums. I would write a lot of music, and it was a uh, usually bass, drums, 
piano, saxophone, voice when Tana joined the band too. And it was a great vehicle for my for my writing. But then when I got the home studio, uh, I was like, well, now I have all these tools that I can work with and just take my time by, by doing something. Because usually when you go to the studio, you have to go with a very planned day with a schedule you know this day we're going to do this five tunes and then tomorrow it's usually very low budget when you do jazz mm -hmm. records so you only have a two or three days in the studio at the most if you're lucky so all of a sudden having my drum set up all the time fully mic'd with and they sounding sounding great i was like man i the sky is the limit now i really can take my time and do something very very experiment experimental and use this opportunity to kind of develop an alter ego almost because I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not longer the jazz guy. I'm using jazz just as a vehicle to do something crazy, you know, mm -hmm. and with, with no um, kind of genre defying. I didn't want to be able to be pigeonholed as, okay, this is electronic thing, or this is a, you know, I didn't want to be, um, I, I didn't want people to be able to pinpoint what style of music sure. that was. Yeah. You know, uh, defined genre so i started just improvising a bunch of stuff and then chopping it up and then adding electronics and and just you know trying to 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 go about it as i went along i had no idea was when it what was going to come out but it was a very kind of um bad bad period for me in, in the sense and for a lot of people uh, because trump was the 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 candidate in that moment. And he yeah. had been expressing um, without much uh, shame what he felt about foreigners and Mexicans and how the bad hombres were in this country. They were all rapists. We all know the, the, the stories. Mm -hmm. And I took the bad hombre, you know, because, okay, he thinks Mexicans are bad hombres, so I'm Mexican, so I'm a bad hombre. And then I thought, well, this is kind of cool because bad, when you're talking about music or jazz, you know, that means that it's cool. Oh, man, mm -hmm. that's super bad, right? Uh, and then the project was just me, so just one hombre, you know, so bad hombre, I thought it fit, it fit perfectly. And I, I wanted to appropriate also the, the, the bad uh, connotation that he was giving it and and make it into something cool you know i'm mm -hmm. just gonna make a record and, and name it name it that but that all of a sudden uh opened the door for me in a really cool way because i was like wow this this bad ombre thing could be like my alter ego every time i want to do something kind of crazy and out of whack and that is not really defined by a specific thing right uh, so now what I what I've done with with that um, bad ombre moniker is that okay I take it and then every time I'm gonna do a solo project where it's just me like a, as a mad scientist in my in my studio uh, working on whatever it is that I'm doing but I'm playing all the instruments I'm uh, I'm uh, also engineering it because I'm the only person down there uh, I'm pretty much mixing the whole thing uh, so every time I do a project like that it's gonna be a bad ombre project so that brings me to the new bad ombre project that i'm going to put out uh, this record which will come out in august end of august uh, of 2022 
Mm-hmm. And that has been postponed already four or five times because of COVID, uh, a bunch of different reasons. But right. this, this is it. If it doesn't come out at the end of August, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been way too long. I feel like I've been pregnant for three years and I'm right. blown in, in a bad mood and um, eating way too much. No. So, <laughs> so it's going to come out in in uh, in August and it's, it's called Shift. Bad Ombre Volume 2. And what I did with this project is that I asked a bunch of different singers and singer-songwriters to provide me with a tune. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would just ask them, please give me any song you want. It could be old, could be new, could have been released before, could be a sketch, anything. Uh, Just give me your voice, click track, and Mm -hmm. if you want to give me any other element, feel free but if you don't have to, because I'm gonna grab the voice and along with the drums, I'm gonna make the voice and the drums be the two main instruments of this mm-hmm. project without it being you know, a bunch of drum solos over what you're singing. So just kind of lend me your song, let me do my thing, and then I'll send it to you. Hopefully you will like it. So the first one was this amazing singer from, uh, from Mexico, Silvana Estrada which I heard her in Mexico doing this beautiful song with just her cuatro guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, man, if I could just have that tune, it was in 5-4, it was really, really cool, and and just play with it, see what happens. Uh, I, I would like to see what, what results it might yield. Mm-hmm. So I asked her, please give me your, your voice, the click separate, the cuatro separate. She sent it to me, and I worked on it for, for a couple of weeks. And... Um, it, it just sounded so cool to me, uh, you know, this new new sound that I had discovered with, with it was not my song, so I was kind of detached from it, and I, mm-hmm. and I could do uh, other things with it that maybe the author, if I would have been the author, I wouldn't do because I'm thinking of the tune in a very specific way. Right. So I reimagined the whole thing, and I sent it to her. She loved it, thankfully. So then I asked Trent Reznor for, for a tune that I met at the Golden Globes when I was nominated for Birdman. And he gave me a tune. Uh, and Michelle and they were cello. I started just asking a bunch of people, but no jazz people. I didn't want this to be a jazz record mm-hmm. at all. Uh, I wanted to be more coming from my rock background. Right. But now seen through the lens of somebody that has played years uh, of, of jazz. So that's going to be the, the the new album. Dave Matthews is on it. Tana, my wife, is on it. Becca Stevens, Lila Downs, uh, the guitar duo Rodrigo Gabriela. It's 12 different artists. Uh, my grandfather is in it. He's an actor. Uh, mm-hmm. 97, just turned 97, uh, January 15th. So he's he's a fantastic actor, and and he is acting as the MC of the record on the opening and the closing. So it's it's kind of like a, everything that I've always wanted to do is in this record, pretty much. So that's amazing. It's amazing. I I know I know it's it's gonna be great. I can't wait. I will have you back on to talk about that when it comes out because there's so Please. much to talk about. So yeah, we'll do a part two when the new that's album great. comes out. So I everyone be on the lookout for that in august and um you can follow antonio on instagram i will link everything um and and also the album info i'll make sure i put that in there as well so 
we'll make that happen. Thank you so much, Antonio. It was so wonderful to catch up with you today. Uh, my pleasure, Sarah. And I have to say, you know, you, I've been following what you've been doing as well since the pandemic started. I remember we did an Instagram live back then, and mm -hmm. it just has been growing. And you've been also growing so much as a as an interviewer and as a host. So thank you. Know, you. Hats up uh, to you as well. Thank you so so much. That means the world to me. I'm having so much fun with this. So I really appreciate it. You're getting, I mean, you are really good at it, but you've been getting better and better as, as time has gone by and, and it's an honor to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll bring you right back and talk all about the new album. I cannot wait for that. Can't wait either. Until then, take care, um, stay safe, and, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.